Welcome to Post-Normal Times, a podcast for our complex reality and unpredictable world, where stakes are high and innovation is crucial. In this series, I get to sit down with some of my favorite minds to explore new ideas that transcend traditional academic boundaries and address our most pressing needs. I'm Andrew Vasco, Associate Provost and Director of Transdisciplinary Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Welcome to the show. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Professor Jeremy Hunter, who is an Associate Professor at Claremont Graduate University at the Drucker School of Management. He is also the Executive Director and Founder of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute. Is that correct? You got it. Okay, Phew. got it. In. And a good friend and colleague of mine that I'm very happy and excited to be reconnecting with. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. It's a pleasure to hang out with you. I first met Jeremy back in, I think, 2017 when I had first gotten to CGU. I was just giving a talk because I had a background in, in circadian and sleep medicine for, I think it was a Drucker alumni group on sleep. It was a pretty intimate group. Like there weren't that many of us there. And suddenly a, a professor comes in and is taking notes like very assiduously, very, very <laughs> rigorously and pulled me aside and kind of struck up this great conversation. And I realized like how many things we had in common and how we saw the world. And, you know, when you, when you find those people who are part of your, your group, you were definitely one of them. And so I was just so happy to do that. Can I ask you to tell people about the kinds of stuff that you do at the Executive Mind Leadership Institute? My current understanding of what I do is help leaders evolve in a world that is continually changing, a leader needs also to continually evolve and that it is a, an ongoing practice. And I, I, think, I think what I do is give the tools to help the leader do that. I, I think we all know the Joseph Campbell quote, uh, follow your bliss, but I prefer another Joseph Campbell quote, which is vital people vitalize. What I have found over and over and over again and now like 20 plus years of, of teaching is that when a leader understands and vital, vitalizes themselves, revitalize themselves, like moving from living and leading from a place of fear and defense to a place of growth, exploration, and adaptation, that their capacity to do that ennobles the, that capacity in the people around them. And, and it's almost automatic. They become a, a kind of tuning fork for their for the people around them. I did want to chime in and say there's something very cool in the transdisciplinary world that relates to that and this concept mm. of growth through challenge. Mm. Um, and that's when you deal with things that are, you can deal with simple things in your life and then we have more complicated things and then we've got complex things and we've got these chaotic things. But when you're dealing with things that start to go into the complex territory, which is the stuff that matters really, like well-being, the sustainability of this planet, your your health, the health of people you care about, the health of the world. The point isn't to solve a problem. And that's a really strange thing that we put on that were these efficiency machines that our point is to be productive and to help get something done. For simple things, that's true. Making a list and checking it off is a simple thing to do. But living a good life should not be a simple thing to do. And so when you approach complexity and things that require that kind of understanding that there's so many ways to work through this, your goal 
is to grow. Because you're working through something that is bigger than you and you're doing this appropriate inventory of where am I as I'm approaching this? What did I learn from it? The reason why you're doing that is to take on something complex next week that will require you to have grown the previous week from what you're doing that makes you better at doing that and your capacity to do better at that is even more efficacious. You, you like kind of struck right at the heart of why I do this work, which is this notion of growth through challenge. My challenge was at the age of 20 being suddenly diagnosed with a incurable terminal illness and facing the reality that medical science didn't know what to do. In fact, all their, all their prescriptions were worse than the disease. And I took it on as a spiritual challenge. Okay, what do I need to transform inside myself? Because something wasn't working, you know, like I had turned into an achievement machine. While I achieved, you know, it was kind of like an empty victory. I was also destroying my body. And that was the challenge. Like, okay, I needed to know, I needed to figure out a different way to live that wasn't driven by fear or constant stress or uh, an identity that meant my accomplishments were my value. And I went on a journey. You know, the original diagnosis was like 90% chance of mortality within five years. And, and I ended up living another 17 after that. So something worked. And I had to learn how to let go of a whole bunch of assumptions about who I was and how the world was and what was value and what was good and learn how to not live from a place of fear and anxiety. You know, if you're 20 years old and somebody says, okay, look, you got five years to live, it's really easy to go to a dark, um, not good place, right? And to be very, it's easy to be a kind of self, in a, in a self-destructive mode. And I think what I was fortunate enough to learn was how to direct my understanding that what I put my attention on was what my life was going to be about. I made a deal with myself that I would put my attention in directions that were life-giving or, you know, the simple way of saying it, like what was interesting to me, what was, what was I curious about, because that's what was enlivening. And I just moved in that direction. It was totally irrational. And that led from East Asian studies to public policy and urban planning to human development and working with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at the University of Chicago. And, and then eventually we came here to to Claremont in 1999. And interestingly, I had read Peter Drucker in 1993 when my best friend's dad said, hey, you should read Post-Capitalist Society when it, when it came out. And I read it and I had no idea what it meant, but I knew that it was important and I, and I still have that book on my shelf. But it was all a challenge to transform my mind in order to keep living. And it started with learning how to place my attention in, in, in areas that were nourishing, life-giving and growth-oriented rather than being sucked down by the rage, anxiety, frustration of having a body that was uh, self-destructing. And it worked, <laughs> you know, somehow it worked. And then all of that got formalized into my teaching. And now, I mean, it's interesting we're starting with this as the topic because I think this is now the challenge we all face. It's like, okay, we have these challenges that we, that are unlike any challenge in human history and that the only solution is that we have to grow our way out of it. One of the things I appreciate that you you articulated is like our job is to grow. If you think about like climate crisis, people who are trying to work in sustainability are trying to make all these kind of cognitive jumps about how can you help get people to be on board. And I think that you encapsulated something that is much more digestible by saying like, our job is to grow. This is something that people respect, understand, and it's in high demand. 
this is a big deal. And this isn't just something that, you know, you're, you're not reading tarot cards for people to tell them <laughs> what choices they should make. This is something that is transforming people's lives in positions where people have a lot of power and a lot of influence and, and are making big decisions. And you're doing it across students' lives. You're doing it across officials, you know, government, non-government, business leaders. What has that reception been like? Because what you're talking about, it has kind of a, um, for lack of a better term, new agey kind of spin that you could go to a self-help section in Barnes yeah. and Noble, but you have an academic take on it and you have mm -hmm. an ability to see the effectiveness in real time in a way that um, other people can't. What is this perception? What is the reception like for you, for people who are really embracing this, who aren't embracing this so much? And how do you get people to understand this in a way that doesn't relegate you to a, a corner of a bookstore. Well, one, number one is to use language that isn't off-putting. The other is is asking people, so you ask the question of like, okay, how do you get people to buy into this, right? And um, that part is actually kind of easy. Like when you ask people a question like, what did you, think about something you have done recently, maybe in a professional context, maybe at home, where you did or said something that in retrospect, you kind of regret now. So where did you cause your own problem? What's the cost of that problem? The cost of the problem is almost always a broken relationship, loss of morale, loss of trust, loss of self-confidence, loss of self-worth, and, and it's very visceral. And then I'll ask a question like, okay, as you think about that situation, where do you feel that in your body? Like, how are you actually experiencing that? So it's not like a conceptual thing. It's like, how do you actually live it? And it'll be like, I feel a pit in my stomach. I feel tension and anxiety. I'm gritting my teeth. Um, you know, I feel profound regret and it's in, you know, there's tightness in my chest. So they start to see the visceral reality of I do this thing that caused a kind of destructive outcome and that my body starts to pay the price for it. And then I'll, I'll ask, okay, well, what, if you hadn't done that, what might've been better? It's like, oh, the project would have moved forward. Our morale would be higher. Um, I don't spend my nights uh, gnashing my teeth over this thing that I did. Um, and so they get to see like, okay, what's the alternative reality had they better, had been able to manage that moment better. My class is not about stress reduction, right? It's about looking at what are the results your actions are generating? And is that what you wanted? And if it wasn't what you wanted, then what else do you, then what else do you want to create? Like, it's all about what are you trying to create in the world? And then we learn how to manage these, what seem to be uncontrollable processes. But when you understand their logic, you can better work with it. So there's, so at that level, it's not new agey at all. It's like, how do I how do I just live the life that my values and wants want to live? That, that's one answer. And then the other is a kind of newer part of my work, which is helping people negotiate transition, which it took me a painfully long time to realize, oh, this is really about human evolution. In child development, you know, like my son is seven, his development is going to happen no matter what, right? All I have to do is not screw it up somehow. But in adults, that development isn't automatic and that it has to be something that's consciously chosen, what it usually means is that a person is living their life with a certain kind of operating system in their head about how, how, they, how they act and achieve and accomplish things in the world. And what often happens is that their world becomes more complex than their operating system can deal with. 
And they start to experience that as loss of confidence, loss of effectiveness, um, anxiety, depression oftentimes, and they, want, they think that there's something wrong with them. What is actually happening is that the, their world has complexified beyond their capacity to deal with it effectively. And then that's the beginning of the adventure they go on to figure out how to let go of, well, what's not working? What are, uh, and sometimes their assumptions, like I have to do everything myself, or I have to be perfect, or, um, you know, that I, uh, I can't rely on other people, right? And it's like all the achievement stories of, of a, of a overachieving teenager, right? Suddenly don't work in your early 30s. So they have to go on an adventure to look at what, what do I need to let go of? Like what emotional resentments or unhealed traumas or um, pains from childhood are you carrying that are forming that worldview? And how do you metabolize and digest them and let them go so that creates the fuel for your next for your next iteration right your next uh, stage of your development and and that's so that from a transdisciplinary point of view like this capacity for self-evolution i think is like a core skill we all need to have especially in a time like a time of intense punctuated change like the one we're living in Right, because it's because there's part of us that wants to go back to the good old days, right? It's like the Bruce Springsteen song, right? I just want right. to go back to the glory days when I was a high school student. I had a varsity jacket and a and a ring or whatever, you know. And um, that's such a powerful temptation, right? To make America great again, right? Like to to go back to the good old days when everything was great, but that never has happened and it never will happen, right? So that's a trap. What I have learned is that's a trap. Going back to the golden age is a trap. And, and the only way forward is to figure out how do you evolve into the reality that's actually here um, and that that's a skill you can learn how to do. I, have, I, I used to be terrified of change and now I see it as a growth through challenge. Like, okay, what is this situation asking me to do? And what, are, and that's inevitably, I have to let go of something. I have to let go of a comfort. I have to let go of an idea or a belief or an emotional reaction. And in that letting go process, you create space for something else to come in and happen. That you, that, as you said, you can't control. You don't know where the journey is going to go. You just need, you know, you just have to go on it. And I think that that, that is where we all are right now. And that, and that at some level, humanity as a species is stuck, right? Like we know this is not working. Something is profoundly not working. And, the, and at least my answer to that is not more technology or more stuff or more whatever. It's like more internal capacity for me to deal with the complexity of the, of, of, of the world right now. You framed something so interesting that I'd never thought about before. Uh, explicitly, and that's bringing in this developmental perspective to when we're younger, how we do things versus when we're older, that ability to evolve from childhood, because it happens almost as an auto program. And that is so interesting, because I'm thinking about this in terms of neuro neural development, and 
um, and what that program looks like and how that program changes after you hit about 20 years old. And so when you do go through from fetal development all the way through adolescence, you have such a high degree of plasticity inside your brain that it rewires like mad. A very typical story is if, if somebody were to have a lobectomy, you can take out one of your hemispheres of your brain or like of, of the neocortex on one side in a kid at a young enough age, and they can recover and you won't know that they're missing one of their hemispheres on one side, not the subcortical things, but the neocortical things mm -hmm. to a certain extent. So you'd be like, I didn't know that that happened. If you do that in an adult, we know what happens when someone has a stroke and it's in this cortical area, then they might be forever paralyzed in that way. They can't because mm -hmm. we don't have the capacity to be so highly plastic and this massive amount of adjustment and rewiring of growth that always happens when we're young that we don't have to try at. It's what happens. But then at a certain age, when this kind of stops, I mean, it slows down until we're in our 20s, you then have to use the capacity building tool that was embedded in our brains of intentionality to do the same thing. It, it does it automatically beforehand, but then you have to use that kind of neocortical drive to then help that plasticity happen because it doesn't, we don't have the resources to do it on autopilot anymore. And that's something that makes so much more sense why you don't have to have these conversations with kids when they don't want to do something that makes their tummy hurt. They're not going to do it. And <laughs> if it does make their tummy hurt, eventually they're going to figure out a way around it and out of it. And their body figures out a way around it and out of it. Most of the time, the ideas of just keep eating it until you outgrow it. Um, you're not doing them any favors. Um, but a lot of times our systems adapt to those kinds of things, unless you have some terrible, terrible allergy or something that is intractable. But as an adult, we get used to these luxuries we had in our developmental pathways that we didn't have to be intentional about anything. It was figured out on autopilot. And now to keep it going so that we can be adaptive, we've got to be intentional. Where did you learn that skill? Like, I'm curious of, of when that crossed your mind and what kind of reactions you get to people now that you can bring up something that's very familiar. Like, when did you mess up? And when did you, when did you feel a pit in your stomach? And what would have happened otherwise? So you introduce this intentionality. What is the journey like for people that you see when you start to introduce this new paradigm of adding a, a kind of microphone to the diminished capacity that we have internally for plasticity, such that between the two of them, we can make up for that, that capacity and now make it more effective again? So just to be clear, right? Intention is one way that drives neuroplasticity, right? So you can rewire your brain by clarifying intention and how you use your attention. And one part of that is asking people, what's the world they want to create? What's the life they want to create? And oftentimes when I ask people, what do you want? They just go blank because nobody's ever asked them, what do they want? They've lived a life that is totally reactive to the wants of the agendas around them, their parents' agenda, the professor's agenda, the boss's agenda, whatever. So first, like, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want to create? Then how do you with the person that could see, okay, I know, I, here's my regret moment, here's the, here's the situation I created, and had it turned out differently, this is what the world would have been like, then you, it's important to create a vision. Like what is, a, what, what I think about like an anchor in the future, and, and that that anchor is kind of guidepost to home in on as you're kind of making your way through the world. So let me give you a really concrete example. Before my son was born, I thought about what kind of relationship did I want to have with him? And one vision I thought about 
was, oh, you know, like when my son is 21 years old, he still calls dad and still like willingly wants to hang out with his old man, you know, it's like, hey, dad, let's take a trip together or something like that, you know, that that there is a warm and healthy relationship between the two of us. That's the anchor in the future. That's the world I wanted to create. So inevitably, like when your three-year-old son, you know, does something that three-year-olds do, and then I get irritated or angry, I ask myself, is what I am about to do or say going to move me closer to that relationship 18 years from now, or is it going to move me farther away from that? That question, having that anchor, has saved my hide so many times. And so it's tapping into people's capacity to create their world, right? Which we don't teach people how to do. I was forced to learn how to do that. And I think that's something that we all need to know how to do. The transdisciplinary folks really stress teaching people how to identify their ontological space and their axiological and their epistemological space. And the creating your world is exactly that, is the ontological space of what is real to me. And the axiological is what are my values? And then the epistemological is what is true. And if you can identify those things, then you can also identify it in other people. And so you realize, and I, I this is one of these problem solving things. Um, when you're talking across the aisle and someone is not hearing you, then you have to ask yourself, are our realities different? And I'm trying to speak in a place of truth because it doesn't matter because the truth in my reality is different than the truth in their reality. So do I need to connect the realities first? Are our values different, but are our realities the same? Because then we can actually make some headway there because we could still find common ground and lived experience and generating mm -hmm. values. from. And so the thing that I, I love what you're talking about in world creation is what I think the superpower of the human mind is, of, of the human being, mm -hmm. is that no matter where we are, we will always have the capacity to create a world mm -hmm. and that world can have a porous nature to it so that it can incorporate other parts of other people's worlds and share with it into other people's worlds. And no matter what it is that we do, we can always create meaning. I'm a big fan of man's search for meaning and the idea that Viktor Frankl had kind of put forth that like, you know, if you can come up with a reason for being, then you can make it through anything. And to me, that's world creation. And then there's Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, who very similarly says, we all have as human beings, what makes it a human being is our, our need to matter. It's a very similar idea is that, you know, she, she said, maybe we should be called human matterings is kind of a, a thing, <laughs> but it's in what worlds do we identify as having some kind of central role? And how have we constructed that? And when we stop thinking that we have a central role in that world, or that we have some kind of agency in that world is when we lose hope and when we lose agency and when we lose capacity to get things done. So I think that's our superpower. I agree with some of these people taking it into my own words, which may or may not be doing them justice. Uh, so I love what you're saying, because it also incorporates this transdisciplinary theme about, we, we call it applied philosophy tools. People were on yeah, something when they were talking about it. And it's not, it's true. It's nice in analyzing a text and it's nice in analyzing very particular problems but it's a way of handling anything is you can apply philosophy in these situations. And we, we actually are, we, we have a term for it that we use at CGU for those of us in the program, we call it the metaphysics of dilemma. And that <laughs> if you can frame what's going on as an ontological, epistemological, axiological thing, 
then you understand the need to either construct or poke holes in a worldview or whether or not you need to connect on points of evidence or if you need to reach across the aisle and understand what shared values or different values look like. And that is far more powerful than almost anything you can learn in an equation or anything that you can learn in button pressing kinds of things that are often you know, really stressed as, as the kinds of knowledge that employers are working for. Because you work with executives all the time and I want to know how many executives feel that the reason why their life is is not as productive or as effective or the confidence crisis or how it becomes more what they want it to be is because they didn't push enough buttons. I think, well, okay, there's so many things, as always, in what you say that are just beautiful things to build off of. For me, well, one of the core stances is one of generosity. Generosity, not reactivity. We have become very, very good at re being reactive, right? Whether like you've used the wrong word and now I'm going to punish you or pouncing on people when they've had some kind of violation of the code. We're so good at that now to the point where defensiveness is the basic posture of conversation in the United States. The counter to that, I think, is generosity, right? It's a capacity to allow, you know, maybe in your, in your language, you know, multiple worlds to exist simultaneously and to be curious about that world rather than judgmental about it because you're going to shut off a possibility you know i i had to learn that as a young faculty member i had to learn not only to accept other worldviews but to open my heart to willingly walk into them and acknowledge them as legitimate right which like no graduate program did it just it, I, but i had to do it it was Part, I couldn't do my job well until I cultivated the generosity to allow this person to exist as they are and give them that respect. So I think that's one thing. I mean, that's, that's the ground from which all of this, I think, needs to grow. The, the second, is you're asking about the executives. I think the sophisticated ones know that they are often the generator of their own problems that they have to grow their capacity to see the world in order to be effective. The really sophisticated ones willingly take on that process and put them through, put themselves through a regular developmental growth process. You know, they see that the that growth is not a one-time affair, but a continual process of refining and refining again their relationship with themselves and their relationship with the world, which oftentimes means in that reality is they have to come to terms with things they don't want to feel. And it is almost 99% of the time that where a person is stuck is because there's something inside them that they do not want to feel. And because they don't want to feel it, they're going to do 5 million things to distract themselves from that feeling. And those 5 million distractions waste time, waste energy, create oftentimes destructive dynamics in the relationship simply because they don't want to feel this thing that is uncomfortable. Like right now I have a student whose father died and she's trying to cognize her way out of not feeling the mourning and loss of her beloved father. So my job, of course, is to push her into that, you know, gently, but it's like, look, you are not going to get to the other side. You cannot like wall off your emotions through your thinking. And that to get to the other side of this, you have to metabolize the profound sadness and grief you are experiencing, which is temporary. That experiencing of that sadness and grief is intense and it's unpleasant and it is temporary. And that at the other side of that, 
you get a person who has far more capacity to deal with the emotional complexity of life because they've lived it and that they are no longer afraid of the emotions inside them, right? And, it, and it's that lack of fear that actually, I think, propels the next stage of growth. And, and I think that, from, from my point of view, in 20 years of teaching, that is the core process, to feel the things that you don't want to feel. And the, the profound superpower you get from being willing to do that. The result of that is somebody who lives in this place of total vitality, right? Because they're, 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 all their efforts aren't about trying to protect themselves from feeling something that's uncomfortable. Now all that energy can go into growth, exploration, creation, development, relation, all of that. And, and so it's just a shifting of the energy. That story is, I think, really effective in, okay, another introduction of a transdisciplinary idea, that the way that we prioritize knowledges comes from a very, very specific idea that the only knowledge that counts is that which exists in a textbook or that comes from a peer-reviewed article. And, mm. and I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of the peer review. I'm a fan of science for a lot of reasons. I come from that world, and I would certainly not hope that that suddenly changes, but that's a form of knowledge. And we call that knowledge, like some, I, there's a framework that one of the transdisciplinary scholars, Hans Dielman uses, and he talks about, look, you could talk about knowledge in a cognitive domain, and that would be this kind of disciplinary classic knowledge that this student was trying to, to rationalize her way through something. Um, but there's other kinds of knowledges. So emotional knowledge is real. Um, and it's knowledge. It's not an emotion. It's knowledge encoded by emotion. And that's something because we don't have the right words to describe what it is, the feeling is telling us something. It's an opportunity yeah. to learn from. It can go into its own tome of understanding, but we view it as something that is this kind of passing thing that we need to be bigger than. And while it's true that our emotions can be tied to a, a rationale that can take us into very, very haywire directions. Like if we think that our anger is because of someone's behavior, and then we do something toward on the outside because of their behavior, there's probably like a 50% chance that that's a correct conclusion. It might, it could very well not be. And so I understand why we have to question those, like, well, what does the emotion really mean? But the emotion is doing something very appropriate. And it, and I know that you've talked about this before at kind of a neural level, but it's that emotion is processing for us in a way that allows us to react very, very quickly and to help maintain our own survival. And it is usually, it's telling us something important. It might yeah. not be telling us what to do, but it's telling us that something important is happening and we have to pay <laughs> attention to that. And that visceral response that you refer to is another level of knowledge of this kind of embodied idea, which is closely tied to the emotional that yeah. if you feel a pit in your stomach, there's knowledge in that. And while we might not articulate it in the same way, because we put so much prioritization on the knowledge that we can have, like in this podcast conversation, that's not the only knowledge. And I, I very much can empathize with this student because I'm the king of using ra rationale and logic to kind of wall off those things that I don't like to experience because it, it does create a nice buffer, but you better believe I grind my teeth at night and you better believe. <laughs> Because there's another knowledge in that, like yeah. you can't hide the knowledge from yourself because it comes out in these different forms. And so if you recognize them all as knowledge, then you can also understand how growth can be easier if you 
incorporate it all. Incorporate right? that. Yeah. But right. if you're trying to ignore the teeth grinding as something that, you know, admittedly, I also wear a night guard. Is that fixing the problem? <laughs> right. You know, it, it, it makes it so that something else is going to be triggered. It's, it's like a balloon, it. right? It's like you squeeze the balloon. It's going to yeah. pop out somewhere else, yeah, right? Exactly. And so, you know, I think about what are emotions? Dan Siegel, the great living developmental psychologist, you know, talks about emotions as flows of information and energy. And if we ignore, as you're saying, like if you ignore the emotion, you're also ignoring the information in it because it's telling you something. So what is an emotion, right? An emotion is how the mind values something. And so the emotional reaction is telling you, what are you valuing? And so if you're not attuned to that, then you're cut off from a whole set, a whole flow of very valuable, powerful information that is telling you about your world and your relationship to it. And, and then, as you say, closely connected to that is your body, because that's, you know, your non-conscious mind is expressing itself through your physical reactions. And if you're not connected to that, then it's, it's like driving down the road with increasingly smaller parts of the windshield to look out what I think about incorporating emotional information and somatic information is that you're making your windshield bigger. You're taking the, the cardboard off the, uh, the rear window. So you've got a greater awareness, situational awareness of who you are and where you are in the world and where you're headed. And is that where you want to go? So transdisciplinarity isn't just, from what I hear you saying, isn't just like more concepts across different domains of knowledge. It's also more information embedded into your body that you have to cultivate a kind of systematic awareness of so that you, you're making, you're, you're relating to the world in a healthier, more constructive way, right? Period. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it's, it's 100% right. And we don't necessarily talk about it in terms of being healthier in your in your space or in your, in your world. Um, although that is one of the big things, it's also making you more a part of the worlds that you're a part of. And I think that your, you teach a class, right? The art of self-management. I've called it now the practice of self-mastery. A oh, self-mastery. Okay. And, um, but it, there is something that you mentioned that I didn't glom onto before, but I'm going to now is that there's something very, uh, connective with Drucker with what you do. And he had called it self-management, I think. Yeah. Um, because so Peter Drucker, the the business, the, the school of management, not business. I think that's an important distinction. Right. Although we do have business people going through there with an MBA degree. Um, his his entire academic career is that of a transdisciplinarian. He's one of the OGs of this. He is <laughs> a social ecologist by name, which is somebody who can see the world in systems. And he looked at it going from this microcosm outward. And so he looked that, you know, if his idea was management that he was perpetuating, it was to look at management inside oneself and then management outside oneself in their community and then management in a societal level and management that these are all kind of like the nested, yeah, the Russian nested dolls. relations. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, but, but that he also viewed things in systems. He also was able to see the interconnectivities of these things and what you're speaking to about the healthy side. And I want to connect it to something that maybe those of you who aren't in a place where you, where you like doing these self-explorations is that you can't escape doing the self-exploration if you have relationships with the same kind of organizations in a community or in a social or in a societal level. Um, it's the same themes that you're going to see 
and a macro and also a micro. And they all represent a version of healthy when we can apply some of these same principles. And so a transdisciplinarian could be the person who's just very in tune with their body and because they understand these different knowledges and they understand their growth. And, and a transdisciplinarian can be the person who wants to integrate across the different you know, uh, constituencies in their city or in their, in their country. And they know how to, or an academic, how to integrate those things. But they're all variations on a theme. And that's one of the great things about it. It's not, we're not that teleological that like you're doing something for the sake of something. It's more of a, a concept of like how to be in times of complexity and change. And that could mean being effective in a business setting, which is where a lot of people will come to this because there is an output of like, I'd like to be more effective in my job. And of course we would, that makes sense. Or I'd like to be more effective in my personal relationships, which is an, of course we would. But there are all ways of navigating complexity and simplicity to some extent, but just navigating these is navigating change and growing through it. Work is the ideal training ground for learning how to refine your mind. That you use the everyday challenges of your life as the place to develop your capacity to deal with life, right? So whether it's the dirty diaper or the difficult colleague or the printer that doesn't work that you want to smash with a sledgehammer, um, that those are all moments that provide opportunities for you to make a choice about where am I going to go? My original interest was the role of curiosity and um, interest in human development and that you know, every person is born interested, is born curious, but not every person dies curious. And I always wondered why that was, right? Because I, I was always curious about stuff. But even by high school, you saw how people just checked out from learning. And what I realized is that curiosity and interest are the drivers of growth and development. You got to keep that alive. And I, I think that's what's inherent to trans transdisciplinarity, right? Is like, is the curiosity of how does this work for somewhere else? You know, like where, where are all things connected? You know, architecture is one of my great kind of maniacal hobbies. And you know, like everything comes into architecture, right? Ecology comes into architecture, structure comes into architecture, psychology, color, all of it. And which is why I think it's so interesting. If you can understand how something you're interested here is related to something over there, then that is naturally a kind of growth oriented way of, of being in the world, you know, that, that know, architecture thing, sense, <laughs> the architecture thing is so good because I've given a talk at a medical conference before, and it was on education of the basic sciences for medical students. And um, there's this maxim in biology that form follows function. Yes. And so you got to think about how everything is a shape in order for it to have some means to it. Mm. And like, I remember back from AP bio, like this is what everybody talks about, like form follows function. And you can't, it's probably not universally true, but it's pretty close to universally applicable. Like you can always find examples of the form follows function in biology. Hmm. And then I learned that it was actually a term coined by Lewis Sullivan, the architect. Right. Um, <laughs> And I'm like, wait a minute, we never gave credit to architecture for this idea that is, I mean, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's a transdisciplinary idea. When you when you talked about that, there's not such a thing as a transdisciplinary discipline, because therein lies the paradox. But, but, it, but it's an attitude towards the world, right? I mean, yeah, that's yes, kind of how exactly. I 
how I see it. It's an attitude towards the world. Like, like as we talked about earlier, like nature doesn't divide knowledge into disciplines, right? It's just right. a flow of information. That's right. We right? do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're trying to make sense of it and it helps us make sense of it. It allows us to do more structured inquiry. The, the world has problems and universities have departments. Uh, <laughs> it is, I mean, it's, there's yeah. a reason why we have those things, but it's actually not the same representation of what Israel, and you don't have to have an ivory tower kind of mentality that it's us, them, but it is time for us to, to question whether or not we can do something about that ivory tower perception, because that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to be separated from the world. We're, we're an integral part of this world. That's, that's a, such a, a special space, I think. We have to be transdisciplinary about an institution itself, because if, if we stay in our lane and think that what we're trying to create is knowledge according to a set of rules that someone else tells our knowledge, and we're not doing the job of integrating that knowledge or helping other people integrate that knowledge, then we've missed a giant gap that that is going to further separate us from reality. And we can yeah. see this in like kind of anti-intellectual movements across the globe right now, especially we're seeing in, in certain states in this country yeah. where universities are being told that they're ineffective, that they're out of touch with reality. And while I, I'm making a criticism here that there are parts of us that are, um, I certainly don't think it's in the hands of special interests to tell universities what to do. That's the exactly wrong thing to do. But it is the job of universities to find our way back into yeah. that connection. It, it, it's the blowback from becoming too inward turning, right? Exactly. Like, I think so. Um, you know, if you need to have a master's degree to understand what the hell somebody is talking about, it's like, then that's going to alienate the vast majority of people out there, it, right? It is. But one of the great things about our community here is there's so many people who are these boundary crossers, who are these people who understand like I've been in a fair number of universities in my life. Um, I've never seen this kind of conglomeration of people, this coalition of the willing. Mm. <laughs> Not that everybody is coalesced. I mean, a lot of us are in our own space doing our own thing, but there are so many people here that mm. get it, that get that kind of, you know, we call it applied research is one version, but transdisciplinarians is another version. We're, we're, we're these different kinds of scholar practitioners but they're people who understand that our job is to be in the world and be part of it, as well as to translate what we're doing, because knowledge takes so many forms. And it's really about being in the world and not being in, in a locked up office. Box. And I think that that's, again, it's a, a kind of quality of generosity, right? Like <laughs> you acknowledge the right of that body of knowledge to exist and be valuable, right? And and like you see it in organizations a lot where like the marketing people hate the engineering people or time. or whatever, right? But without the marketing, the people, the, the engineers can't sell their stuff. And yep. so it's like, how do you respect and honor this way of seeing the world because it's also legitimate, right? And so again, I think it's it's having a base of generosity and not reactivity as your fundamental value, because the reactivity will do nothing but just separate you. My my way of thinking about it is because I don't have the other version against reactivity, but I think of it in terms of escalation with the examples you were giving, mm. that um, because our unintentional version of dealing with conflict is escalation, um, because we're thinking of things as so cause effect kind of, of means, then when we're dealing with a complex space, 
if you escalate, you're doing more of the same old thing to make a change in the version mm -hmm. of what's going on now because it's a power dynamic in your mind. Then all you cause the opposite side to do is raise in their voice. And so we see this a lot where we think power is one of our is, is one of our underlying troublemakers that we go into escalation mode so quickly. And it's gotten pretty apparent in the last decade that escalation is the preferred means. And we go straight to the big red button now. We, yeah. we escalate so quickly that it's like, ruin your life, ruin the lives of, of everybody around you, ruin this entire building, ruin this institution. Right. And, and it's um, totally destructive, right? And that, it's that's... very destructive. It's very destructive. And it it's self-destructive too. The person who pushes the button does not get out of this unscathed. <laughs> I, I think that that's one of these misunderstandings. And I'd never thought about it in terms of generosity in that way as, as the other side to it. I keep thinking like, do you really want to do, are we going to go in escalation? Because there's probably 300 directions you can take given what just happened in front of you. Um, escalation is the easiest and yet it's going to be the most problematic in the, in the long run. And I, I think that that's the thing that I'm always trying to teach to, to people in a systems view is escalation happens very naturally. Cold War is this perfect example yeah. of escalation. So, you know, that's where I think that is a fundamental weakness of a critical orientation towards the world, quite frankly, because that being critical predisposes you to a destructive mindset. It's far more useful and helpful to simply be curious and to be curious and generous because I don't understand how you see the world. It's oftentimes why universities are such destructive places. And I think that's why when people criticize what are universities good for, that, that's one of the reasons. You know, I've, had, I've had people tell me, look, we're looking for a position, uh, you know, they're trying to staff a position of an of a organization that wants to make change in the world. And we'll tell you the one place we don't look for to hire are academics because they don't know oftentimes yeah. how to build a coalition, how to yeah. create, um, how to create a community, right? Because the fundamental orientation is around, is around destruction. When you were talking about our capacity for deconstruction, which is the way that we've learned how to be. I mean, that's, we're coming from a very reductive kind of mindset with most Absolutely. of what we do. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, well, what's the opposite of that? And I could see now where generosity was a word. And I was thinking generativity. Like if we taught the capacity to be both generative and deconstructive at the same time, that's what our brains are doing. That's what plasticity really is. We're getting rid of things that we need to get rid of. And we're also creating things that we didn't have before. And it's in balance with each other that we do this kind of generation and, and deconstruction. And there are those of us, and I think we're in a good community here to be able to provide that for students in a lot of ways, for leaders in a lot of ways, that balance of generativity and deconstruction, because it's not one or the other. I mean, it's not a zero sum game, but there is a balance between them that I do agree with you historically, certainly in disciplinary spaces. Our coin of the realm is who's the best at critiquing someone else who can who can make that argument more clearly of why someone else is wrong and not as well about why there's there's right in it. Yeah, that has yeah absolutely limited use. And and what I find is that people who are really good at that have pretty miserable lives because they bring that mentality to everything. Because at the end of the day, right, what is management about? It's about producing a result. And okay, well, what's the result we want? And, and it's inherently, ideally, like when it works well, a really creative endeavor, right? That's why entrepreneurship is so interesting. Like, what, what do you want to create? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you uh, sacrifice your ability to be a rigorous thinker, 
if the only thing if the only thing you've got is that button that blows up the building then you know good luck with that it, it's i mean what i had to learn in living with chronic illness was that i had to build something i had to build a life that meant figuring out how to make investment and creation and vision and to have the to the extent that i do discipline to move forward right and um and I think that's what's really needed. That, that's why I think the whole notion of transdisciplinarity, for me at least, is based on, on a kind of quality of generosity and kindness, right? I mean, like, why the hell do we have to be so nasty to one another? Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a weird thing, you know? That, that's why academics are oftentimes incredibly ineffective. But your, your point on rigor was really interesting, goes back to that privileging of knowledges. You could be rigorous in a cognitive disciplinary domain, but are you rigorous in an affective or an embodied yeah. domain? you have to be ethically rigorous as well. You have to be um, emotionally and socially rigorous in what you're doing. And, and those kinds of things are the skills that we're trying to convey that rigor is not just exist because of a, a communing of three people who happen to have doctoral hoods that say that this is what rigor means to us. We have lots of versions of understanding what rigor is, but we haven't put them out there to say, you know what? We're human beings capable of lots of kinds of rigor. And when we integrate those with each other, then that's when the magic happens and not just this this other form. Yeah. There's emotional rigor. Do I know what I'm feeling right now? There's somatic rigor. What is my body telling me right now? You know, and those are not, those aren't taught. Thank you for today, Dr. Hunter. It was awesome. My conversations (laughs) are always so generative with you. um, And they get me thinking about so many things that um, I, I, I hope that our audience has a chance to experience this the same way I do. It's really a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, Andy. You're just the greatest guy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Post-Normal Times. Thanks to our guest, and thanks to our support from Claremont Graduate University. If you enjoyed Boundary Crossing with us and want to hear more, make sure you follow us, spread the word, and tune in to our next episode. Mm-hmm.